We interrupt this program to bring you the Utility Players Classified Results. Arsenal, nil. Manchester City, one. Heart of Midlothian, six. Dundee, two. Tennessee Titans, 42. Houston Texans, 36. Rory McIlroy, six under. Tied 21st. Tommy Fleetwood, two under. Tied 59th. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Rory, your patience has been rewarded. The Scottish Championship is back and hearts hit the ground running. 6-2, home to Dundee, and I tell you what, watching that game, the quality of those goals... If they were in the, I mean, the Champions League starts later this week. If they were in a Champions League semi-final, final, quarter-final, there would be, yeah, up in arms across the world about the quality of some of those finishes and some of those goals. Yeah, I mean, it was a brilliant game. It was an absolutely brilliant game. It was, it was open. It was end to end. It was exciting and and eight goals. And as as you said, the goals are absolutely fantastic. I tweeted after the game that Hearts have accidentally signed Roberto Carlos, not Stephen Kingsley at, at fullback, because. I mean, scoring a free kick was, was very Roberto Carlos-esque, but then that strike for his second goal was absolutely fantastic. And yeah, I mean, it was a brilliant game of football. Hearts looked good. They looked threatening. I think that's what all Hearts fans wanted to see because it could have, like, there was a lot of, there was a lot of pressure on Hearts this year to come in and just dominate the league, walk the league and get straight back up. But obviously, often that it sounds easier said than done, these things. So to come out and play really well and show that, They've got the quality to hopefully do well in this league. It was a very refreshing start to the season for the Hearts fans. And yeah, and I saw Anne Budge up there. Must be smiling behind her mask, uh, getting one over over Dundee, who, uh, who if conspiracy theories are to be believed, are one of the reasons that finally put the nail in the coffin for Hearts going down into the championship. Yeah, and we saw a very kind of how the world of modern Twitter works these days with football clubs of Hearts getting a bit of shithousery out there and and putting and putting out a tweet that kind of called Dundee out for their actions and suggesting they got they got revenge. So entertainment online and also entertainment on the football pitch. But yeah, Hearts fans will be very happy and I'm sure because it was Dundee and Dundee were one of the teams that turns their vote against Hearts during the whole kind of crises of Scottish football during lockdown. I think it'll be all the sweeter for the Hearts board that win. And patience paid off for you. Patience has now paid off for me. We get to talk about the NFL and Tennessee Titans on the podcast for the first time since we started. Winning against uh, big rivals Houston Texans in overtime and uh, and going to 5-0. and oh. And I think I've ever been so stressed watching a team that has not lost a game yet. It's top of the table. And uh, and is actually doing quite well. Four of their five games, they've won with the, literally the last play of the game. And as ever the pessimistic sports fan, I keep expecting them to blow it. Finally, my, my favourite player, Derek Henry, comes up over 200 yards for rushing, uh, almost 250 yards total from scrummage. And uh, the Titans remain one of only three teams who are, who are unbeaten. Um, coming up, the Steelers next week are also one of the unbeaten teams. But everyone... Um, 
talked about in the off season when we talked about COVID, the difference uh, in what continuity might make to to teams around the world of sport, and and the Titans are one of those teams that actually has one of the biggest, or I think one of the strongest case that continuity matters, and uh, and and reaping the awards for it, and one team that won't be having as much continuity going forward as Liverpool, who lost Virgil van Dijk um, this weekend in a, in a really horrific um, horrific accident um, with their tackle from Jordan Pickford on him. Yeah, I mean, on the Titans, I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Derek Henry. Didn't he go the full length of the field for a touchdown this weekend as well? No, no, not quite. He he, The full length would be 99 yards. He only went 94, um, <laughs> which for most, most players would be the longest they will have done in their career. But no, no, Derek only has done 99. He, ha- he has done the entire length of the field two years ago against the Jags. So this was just a modest ni- 94. But, you know, people talk about you know, diff- what, what are the best athletes in, in different sports around the world and stuff like that. And I don't think I've seen, in terms of a specimen, an athlete or a human being like Derek Henry. If you have a chance to go out and sort of see see how he moves. This bloke is six foot five, six foot four, six foot five, weighs 250 pounds they say in america i'm not quite sure what is 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 kgs but can run at almost olympic speeds like the size is like usain bolt if usain bolt was five times as wide five times as deep it's just incredible and uh, to watch him uh, watch him go out and take the game on his back was is what what i love about american football i'm on that old old school tradition he's loved running the ball all this new new age passing and stuff like that for me get your head down and smash through some tacklers and and run the ball hard yeah i mean some of these american football players are incredible in terms of their performance output and their size and all these things i think that people moan about all the different players you have in American football and, and the fact that there's like 50 players to have 11 players on the team at once etc and, and I, I totally get that but I think that one of the things it does give you is you just have players who are absolute specialists and they are so physically in tune to do their individual skills so well and you get such fantastic athletes because of that because I said it is so defined and so kind of disciplined to that one position and they have to be so just they have to be so good because they are only expected to do that one thing. So I think, yeah, that's definitely one of the advantages we see from American football. We get these amazing athletes like Derek Henry. Um, but going back to your point on Liverpool, I think it's this weekend could have been a turning point uh, for Liverpool. You're talking about kind of athletes and, and being the top of your game in your position. And Virgil van Dijk is that. He is, if not the best centre-back in the world, certainly what in the top five and in the, in the conversation. And I think it is not, a massive overstatement to say that without him Liverpool won't win the league. I don't I can't see a way that Liverpool win the league now. He is so important to that defence. And I think I think I very much compare it to to Vincent Company for Man City. Man City over the few years have, have, have had all their success when Vincent Company's been playing and we've seen Man City drop off in the last year or two. And then that's partly because Vincent Company hasn't been replaced yet by Man City since they won that league the season before last. And I think that it could be very much similar to, to Liverpool without Virgil van Dijk, at least until January, and they can hopefully maybe potentially go and spend some money and look for someone to replace him for the for the back half of the season and then potentially partner him when he comes back. But I think certainly Liverpool without Virgil van Dijk are going to be a much weaker side. Yeah, I, I mean, we saw that. We, we've seen for a number of years Liverpool getting closer and closer, at first under Rodgers, then under Klopp, and... And the straw that broke the camel's back was 
was Van Dijk. They're going to score goals. Uh, they're going to create goals. We, we all know that. The, the way this the Premier League's going this year, everyone's going to score goals. Um, so the teams that do have some semblance of a half-decent defence, uh, half-decent defenders, I think are going to be the ones that, that succeed because everyone's scoring goals at the moment. And and without Van Dijk, that's a, that's a massive miss. And we talk about continuity. You need... There's such a lack of of talent in central defenders and goalkeepers that seems to be around the world from what I remember from 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, they lost Allison for a number of weeks and we saw uh, the the issues we've had there. We've seen previously when some of the, the best goalkeepers go down or best central defenders and I think this is going to be the Jenga piece. You know, a couple of times I mentioned before, credit to an American football uh, journalist called Dave Damashek who, who, who came up with a very poignant point that has always stuck with me is that, you know, in each team, who's the Jenga piece? That one piece you remove and the whole the whole tower falls down. And I think for me, that is Van Dijk. I think Liverpool could have covered the loss of Salah, Mane, Henderson, you know, to some extent even at Allison. But I think without Van Dijk, it's 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 really not gonna be very, very pretty watching. Yeah, I almost wonder now for Liverpool whether we've seen a lot of the trends recently is to go to a back three or a back five in football to give you that extra defensive cover but still allow you to have more players up the pitch and you do wonder now without Van Dijk in the heart of that defence whether potentially doing something like going to a back three might help shore them up defensively have that extra body it's it's something they do pretty similarly anyway because Fabinho sits and then Alexander Arnold and Robertson really push on and it and it does become a back three at times anyway with that holding midfield player saying but you wonder now whether if if they did they did really change it up and put a back three of Matip, Gomez and Fabinho as a really kind of strict back three and then that gave Robertson and Alexander Arnold strength to push on even further and maybe be slightly less important defensively because I think we, the agreement is they're both better players going forward than they are defensively then that might give them a little bit more security at the back and I think they'll still score goals, certainly. I don't think there's any worry about that with that front three. They'll still score goals. Could be something that Klopp looks to do. It'd be an interesting to see if it's something that he considers because I think he's pretty set in his formation currently and it's worked for him, so I can't see him changing it. But it's something that just comes to mind could be a, an interesting way of overcoming not having Van Dijk. Indeed, and uh, and with the Champions League starting, uh, it's going to be you know Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Sunday for, for the foreseeable future. Um, with with cut runs and things like that, so it's going to be busy. And how he rotates through all that will be be interesting to watch. Um, well, this week we've got no guest, but what we do have returning uh, at the weekend is the Six Nations uh, to finish the end of the the tournament from from February and March. Um, COVID nineteen put pay to finishing it then. So uh, what we're going to do instead is have a little bit of a, a debate, a little bit of a review of what we think are best. Six Nation teams of all time will be. So that's obviously six nations. So that doesn't include the five nations, the four nations before that. So from from 2000 onwards, um, who we think our 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 teams we would we would pick. Um, I, I know we've taken slightly different tacks at looking at it, but but before we get to that, we've got other rugby to talk about. We had the Heineken Cup final this week, and we had uh, Exeter pipping Racing 92-31-27. An incredible end to the game where um, where. Well, first of all, half time, Exeter looked like they were in total control going into half time at 21 uh, 12. Racing came back strong in the second half. And and even going down to the last couple of minutes, Exeter had to play the last 10 minutes pretty much with 14 men. Racing had camped out on the Exeter line and and gang tackling and proper team defence um, from Exeter allowed them to get the penalty to, to then 
get down the other end of the field and, and kick and kick the penalty with the last kick of the game. But what an advert for, for rugby and what an advert for, for how we want to see rugby being played. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it's just got everyone back in the rugby union mood again before the Six Nations starts and then the autumn series, which I think will be really interesting as well. I mean, I certainly... I love rugby. Rugby's one of my favourite sports to watch. But I I find I'm very much more attuned to watching international rugby. I spend a lot more time watching international rugby. I love watching international rugby and, and find it harder to get into the club game. Partly because I've never really had a team that I've really supported. I mean, Edinburgh would always be my team, but it's, it's never been like that, I guess, committed a support. And I've always been a massive Scotland fan, so I think that's a big part of it. But this was such a great advert for club rugby and such a fantastic advert for what happens when you do get the best teams in Europe bashing out against each other. And then a really nice picture at the end of, of um, Finn Russell and Stuart Hogg sharing a drink and kind of showing the rugby spirit and showing what this this game's really all about. Yeah, I mean that was that was a great photo and, and rugby fans will always lord over other sports about you can hit each other for 80 minutes and smash into each other and and swear at each other and give your all and then as soon as that final whistle goes that's it it's all kind of left behind. But it really intrigues me that you've that you're someone who who much prefers international rugby and I know you see haven't we really had a team but I look at how international rugby and domestic club rugby is played and the actual brand of rugby in general at club level i think is a, a generally a more exciting brand of rugby because every international game has that little bit more on it you know it can be a much more cagey affair much more strategic affair but then you watch club rugby which has obviously every, everything every game has something on it but because it's a longer season there's more games tends to be people from different you know parts of the world coming together you know, as we see in, in other, you know, high profile sports, the actual openness and expansive brand of rugby and that quick style of rugby is, is more on show. So I'm surprised someone like you who is a rugby lover has never really embraced club rugby. I think you're totally right there. I, I'm not trying to do a disservice to club rugby at all. I think there's some brilliant club rugby played all across the world. And we're seeing it. We've seen the height of it in Europe this weekend. But as I said all across Europe every weekend. There's fantastic club rugby being played. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that a disservice. But I think it's almost the opposite of what you just said. And that's what I think I love about international rugby so much. It's because every game means so much. It's that like tension and that like real like high drama, and like one game can can mean such a big deal when it comes to things like Six Nations and world ranking points and all these sorts of things. And I think that that's what really like draws me in about it. And I think because I'm a bit I'm I'm quite analytical and quite purist. I don't mind watching a more cagey game, if, but if, if it, then there's an there's like a storyline below it of the tactical battle of trying to win win at the breakdown, win set piece ball, and and, and get that one percent. I think that's what so many games of international rugby now are one by one percent, and I think that's why I love so much about it. In rugby league, um, sticking with rugby, a different different format. We we also had the, the showpiece with the uh, Bradford Super League final, and um, not quite as an exciting affair with uh, Hull FC beating uh, Castleford forty eight six. So not quite the same affair. I didn't really get a chance to watch this, but. We were just talking about rugby union and the kind of cagey affair. And it's something our dad always talks about is how he sees modern-day rugby union becoming more and more like rugby league. And in terms of the con- contesting for the ball and actually you know, committing players into a ruck and rucking over the ball and actually that being a contest. And, and these days, modern-day defensive coaches in rugby union just fanning out like you would in rugby league and, and not even trying to contest it and, and play sort of that style of defence... Said you're a purist there. 
where do you stand on on kind of that? You know, we look across the two disciplines, and and is there potentially, obviously, apart from the sets of six, becoming a much a very sim- similarity to the to the style of games being played? Yeah, I totally get what you mean, and I think you certainly watch rugby games from twenty years, well, probably longer than twenty years ago, thirty years ago, and it's a much more of a mess around the breakdown than it is now because it's sort of all sort all bodies flying in. But I think it's just how the game evolves, and it's just how when you think about the game more and players get better at their individual skills, etc., that you find ways of, of playing the game more efficiently. I'd say, I would say that you said other than the sets of six, are they getting more similar? But I think actually the sets of six is what totally defines the games apart. The fact that you can only have the ball for six set possessions, it totally changes how you approach your attacking structure, how you ta- approach attacking game. Where in rugby union, you know, if you want, you can have the ball for 10, 12, 14, 16 phases and, and, that is potentially getting easier to do now that teams are committing less teams, less players in defence in the breakdown. So you think that they're only going to commit once. If you have two or three players being efficient, you should be able to win your ball back most times. Obviously, there's lots of variations in that. But that then totally redefines how you move the ball, how you how you structure your attack in play. It's not necessarily about kind of getting quick yards as quickly as possible because you know that you've only got five or six phases to get that. You also don't have the free 10 metres to run into when you get the ball, so that changes it as well. So I think that, yeah, I totally see what you're saying. In it, but I also think that the breakdown is to the contest, but the way that teams play now is that in defence, you put one player into the breakdown, but that player is, is expected to be so efficient and so aggressive that they are making it a contest. They are making it difficult. They are slowing the ball down. And if they are being successful enough, that's when you can get brave and put two or three pulver players in to help them to see if you can win a turnover. So it's not that it's not a contest, but you're expected to have one player who is good enough to compete in there on his own. And then you can have the other players defensively. So it, it is still a contest in that sense. So I think there is definitely similarities and it's going to be more expansive, more open and less kind of, cagey in around the in around the rocks there's less players in there but i still think there's lots of differences in the structures between the two games still yeah obviously structurally wise as well sort of meaning tactically in terms of uh, it's funny i was talking about uh, nfl earlier you know old school like running the ball like defense is i'm a bit of a purist like when it comes to that i often enjoy seeing a back rower or a center or whoever front row going in and stealing the ball and getting a proper turnover than I do seeing a try in rugby union because I mean I don't know if it happens more frequently or or, or it happens more infrequently now because there's less bodies being put in but I, I like the idea that actually after a tackle there is a contest for the ball and and actually valuing resources there rather than just fanning out and, and, and fanning out. And I think that, that game that, that side of the game's gone. I think the general athleticism of rugby players now is is, is more so that um that that their people can do more roles. So they're not expected just the forwards to go in and have a bit of a bash of heads and kind of throw some lumps against each other and, and hope to, you know, win the ruck. I also think that the rules now make it much more difficult. There's the around ruck time now and um and the breakdown the referees are a lot more tight on what is legal and what is illegal. As you said, you watch footage um, from from 30-plus years ago. It was a lot more of a mess. It was you know, a lot more of unstructured sort of rucking, unstructured entry points, etc., etc. And I know there's a big safety element to that. But I think now we've got to a stage where it's, it's not the case. We're going to see four or five players from each side and part of me wishes that was the case because then ultimately that would leave more space. You talk about in rugby league, you've got ten meters of space to run into. You know, you're never going to get that. But 
if the defensive line has suddenly got four or five players in over the ball trying to win it, then suddenly you've only got nine, ten defenders to defend the width of the pitch, you know, and suddenly do we see a bit more kind of expansive play in the op- in the open space? Yeah, I've got the days of playing Junaluma rugby and you 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 bash your X button to add more and more players and they kind of push yourself back and forward and there'd be eight players in there and a couple of passes and what have you. But I, I do, you know, the best passages of rugby are where there is some space and the comp- passing combinations and we see that that could be utilised. Whereas, um, whereas I just don't think we're going to get that as much. Yeah, I mean, I, get, I totally guess where, you guess where your priority lies. If you're wanting just pure entertainment spectacle, yeah, I think certainly... Having more players commit in defence or more players in the breakdown to create that extra space will make the game more exciting because you'll get the, you'll get more tries, you'll get more space in the back line to, to see tries that from further out as well. But I think for me, what I love is just that kind of tactical battle to try get that 1%. And if that 1% is having one person hitting the breakdown in defence really, really efficiently, so that then your other 14 players can... Well, obviously get the tackles on the floor as well. So the other 13 players can be in a defensive position... Then that I, I like that kind of tactical element and how teams approach the breakdown. Or do teams now go well? Players are putting more players in the breakdown in attack, less players in the breakdown in attack because they're expecting to have lesser contest at the breakdown. So actually, at times you pick your times where you overload the phrase breakdown as a defensive team and win the ball back. And it's that kind of decision making that there's at times where when when do we go one in? When do we go no one in? When do we go two, three men in? Have we made a dominant tackle? We've made a dominant tackle, yes. Well, we maybe can fire two, three men in because they're on the back foot and we might get a chance to slow the ball down or win a turnover. Or has the opposition made a dominant carry and we think, well, we're on the back foot, we're not going to put anyone in and we're going to fan out just to defend the wider areas. I think that's, for me, that is what is the interest of rugby, those little cute decisions. But I go to get if you're not maybe as purist or as analytical about it as some you can just want to see tries and want to see expanse and you get that from rugby league there's lots more tries in rugby league and they also the fact that you have a fifth tackle where you either got or the fourth tackle where you got to keep the ball and score or, or be forced to kick it away on the next touch so you see offloads and keeping it alive and out the back door and, and that sort of stuff that does make it more interesting and expansive and and I think it just depends totally what your priorities are. I mean, just a final point. You, you said the intricacies. I don't. I don't see why those intricacies can, can be lost. Rather than it being zero men in, one men in, two or three men in. Why can't it be two men in, or three or four men in, or five or six men in, and actually go and you know the and actually make it a contest. You've made a tackle. You know, that's one really apart from interceptions or turnover from from poor play poor play from the team that has the ball you know that's the only opportunity if you get the ball back it's not like rugby league where you have to say you make x me tackles and it's kicked back to you or what have you it's not like american football where you have your four downs and then it's it comes back to you now that's your that's your opportunity to get the ball you know and you know we talk about one percenters i mean how many tackles are you going to make in a game I, i i don't know you might know the kind of actual numbers i mean let's say you make 70 tackles in a game. I don't know. That might be well off the mark. But that's 70 opportunities to win the ball. 70 chances for you to win the ball. Now, I'm not stupid. A lot of those times it might be, you know, they've broken through the line and it's a recovery tackle or a scramble tackle or whatever else. But let's say 90% of those 70. In the case you've got 63 times, you can try and win the ball. Why wouldn't you try and win it 63 times? That's, the, that's you know, if you talk about analytics and breaking it down to the, the fundamentals and the and the basics... You want the ball. If you've got the ball, you can score, and your opposition can't score. If they have the ball, you can't score. So if you've got the ball, you've got 63 opportunities to win it, why don't you try and win it 63 times? 
I think I think it's I, I think there's a few things there. I think one of the general idea that because there's less players in, it no longer becomes a contest is wrong. I think you can still have a very good contest of the breakdown if the defensive players team have only put one or two players in. It's all about how efficient those players are. I think now you see some of the best counter in the world or some of the, the forwards that get themselves in the best positions create a contest even when there's one of them in there. And that's what makes him so great. I mean, you see someone like Richie McCall, the ability he got over to get over the ball, to make difficult, to make himself hard to remove as one player. And sometimes it would take two, three players to take him out of that breakdown. That doesn't mean it's not a contest. It's just a different contest. And I like seeing that one player has that ability to, to create that contest in defence on their own. But I think, yeah, I get what you mean by 60 or 50 or however many times that you've got a kind of, kind of neutral or positive attack in your favour. That's, that's your opportunity to win the ball. But I think it's very much like it's like a game of cat and mouse. It's a bit like playing a high press in football. Like you see teams like Liverpool and Man City now being really brave and pressing up the pitch and trying to win the ball back up the pitch because they think that's a positive place to win the ball. In the knowledge that then if some other team plays through that press, they then are more exposed at the back. And it's the same in rugby that if you if you're prepared to put three four men into the breakdown every time, yes, that's the time to be really brave and try win the ball back. And and but at the same time. You then know that if you lose that, then suddenly you potentially have to leave yourself short in defence, and there's a, and then there's a chance you get beaten out wide, especially when you've lost at least two defenders from your defensive line already, because you've got a fullback and a winger who's probably dropped back, and you might have even had another winger drop back as well. So suddenly you could be six minutes light in your defensive line when the opposition are then piling their fullback and their wingers into the defensive line. So yeah, there is that element you got to consider, but and that is that is I guess the the risk and reward, the cat and mouse. And I think a lot of it isn't as much about do we put men in or do we not put in? It, it's making the good decision of of are we are we what position of the pitch we in? Are we in their half? All right, we can maybe be a bit brave at the breakdown because then we, a mistake might not risk us. Or are we in our own twenty two? And we think actually we need to find out here because we could concede a try. And it's like you might see Liverpool press a team in their own box because you think well they're up, up the, they're they're not in attacking position. But equally when the teams have got the ball in, in Liverpool's half, they drop in, create two banks of four and or bank of five and a bank of four, and they and they regain their shape it's all about just making the decision on the on the right part of the pitch well before we move on to uh looking at some more rugby union and our six nations teams of uh we would choose from the last 20 years there is a couple of other sporting things to touch upon the utility players weekly roundup over in america this week the world series gets underway with the la dodgers taking the tampa bay rays in their seven game series can the los angeles franchise win both the major league baseball and basketball titles in the same month in european football we see the return of the champions league with the showpiece games from the uk team as being man u versus psg and liverpool versus ajax europa league also turns this week with celtics being the showpiece british team taking on ac milan over in Dubai, the IPL continues with the Delhi Capitals staying top of the table. They've won seven out of their nine games so far. The Vietnam Grand Prix has unfortunately been cancelled due to the coronavirus pandemic. The country will have to wait another year to host its first ever Formula One Grand Prix. So this week, as we said earlier, return of the Six Nations. We've had some good rugby chat so far, but uh, it's now time for the main event. Some uh, some hard decisions to be made here Rory um, I'm not sure how you want to do this I mean are you wanted to go full 1 to 15 do you wanted to do it by position groups um, go back and forth what's, what's your thoughts 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, the first thing I want to say is how excited I am for the Six Nations to be returning. It's hard to kind of get your head around about what's what the situation was, but the, the championship's still pretty well poised with, uh, well, it's probably England and, and Ireland, the two teams, and France as well, the three teams looking to, to potentially still win it with Wales out of it, with Scotland realistically out of it because they need Italy to win two games and obviously Italy is out of it as well. So still three teams that could win it, but I think it'll be a totally different dynamic, teams coming back in after so long away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing to think that this actually got would get finished. I think back to when that Ireland-Italy game was cancelled way back when in, in February and March and Bice finished in October and I thought, oh, that's not that far away. Or yeah, And then as it's gone on, I thought, I'll never get finished and it'll just get chalked up. But but here we are. And I say, I think you said, I mean, I love watching the, the Six Nations. I think it's brilliant. I think that that sort of six, seven week periods where you've got the three games on across the weekend and settling in and watching it and goes back to something we talked about a number of times. It's free to air. You know, it's it's free to air. Everyone gets exposure to it. And I think that's why I get such such wonderful support. But um, but yeah, I, th- I think why don't we why don't we sort of go uh, front row and uh, let's go sort of position group by position group. So start with the front row. You, you can you can start us off. So my team. So I think my um, my tactics for picking my team was I'm going to go for for players who have either contributed a lot to the Six Nations, um, either just for their personality, the number of games they play, what they've done for their teams, or, or maybe the, the things they've won, and then a few just because of their outstanding talent. And but but mainly that their contributions. So starting with my front row, I'm going for Gethin Jenkins, Rafael Ibanez, and Castro Giovanni. So it's a Gethin Jenkins being the, the most capped front rower of all time. And it, and from what I could work out, he's only one of... I might be wrong, it was very hard to find information on this, but I was trying to work out players who's won the most Six Nations. And there was very few who had won four. There was lots who had won three, but very few won four. But Gethin Jenkins was one of the two players I could work out that has won four Six Nations. There might be a couple more, but they were one of the, two, the only two I could find. But what's more about Gethin Jenkins, he also won four Grand Slams. He didn't just win four Six Nations, he won four Grand Slams, which is unprecedented in itself. So obviously, amazing contribution for the amount of times he played for Wales, the amount of times he plays in Six Nations, and the amount of times he won, I think, is, is just the best. And then Castro Giovanni, I think, maybe not the best in terms of talent, but in terms of like a character for the Six Nations, someone everyone absolutely loved for his passion, his personality, his way that he existed in that Italian team that were kind of always the plucky underdogs, and he epitomised everything that's great about kind of sport and rugby and all those things. And then... Rafael Ibanez, just an amazing hooker, one of the best we've seen. French captain for a lot of the early Six Nations years, where France France won a lot of titles in those kind of early years of the Six Nations, and he was kind of the ever ever present in an evolving France team, and and his kind of iconic one-handed line-out throws and all those things will be synonymous with the Six Nations. I think he's just he's just unbeatable. I'm really annoyed. That you went for Ibanez because that's who I went with as well. <laughs> I'm really annoyed. I thought I've I thought I've got absolute beauty a diamond in the rough. But of course you've you have you have got that in. But I mean I, I did mine slightly differently in terms of I I I I'm more more did mine from memory where where I think back and watching the Six Nations over the last twenty years, players who have dominated games and changed game changers uh for teams that you know, winning teams and, and, and you know, when the back's against it and you need a big play or something like that you know these were people who had standout moments and uh and were very very successful so that's kind of how i did it so it might not be 
the, always the people with the best stats or whatever else, but just my best team of just people I enjoyed watching because what they did. So front three, I have two of the same. So I've gone Gethin Jenkins as well. I've gone Ibanez and I've gone for Jason Leonard, actually. So um, I got a little bit more in depth here. I thought with my front, with my front row, with there being a loose head and a tight head, I thought that Gethin Jenkins, obviously a fantastic scrummager, but it was his all-round play. What he, what he, you know, he wasn't one of the, he wasn't the most dynamic ball-carrying, you know, one of these, you know, modern front row forwards who's almost like an extra back rower. But he was not a liability at all. He could carry the ball. He could tackle. He was good in open play. Everything you said, even as I completely echo, you know, incredibly outstanding all-round player in, in all facets of the game. And Jason Leonard, I mean, one of the best scrummages you'll ever see. And and in a time where you know he kind of transitioned from the back end of of quote unquote amateur into professional rugby and everything else and and so it was you know it always a there's always a physicality element to it but his technique and his ability to scrummage over the length of time the amount of caps this man got uh, in a very physical position I just think is is something that's unrecon is, is not recognised and because he did it they say right at the start. Um, in that time, and he kind of, when you think about that World Cup winning sort of England squad around that time, you think of Martin Johnson's and Delaney's, but I think he was really an underrated part of that whole um, era of, of English rugby. Uh, going into the, the, the second row, um, for me, I went for two just giants of the line out, just two people. Again, not necessarily big, big dynamic ball carriers, but when you think about just leadership and power and control and understanding and intelligence and just reliability it had to be Paul O'Connell and Alan Jones I just I couldn't think about it for, for a long time I had Courtney Laws in there because I think actually Courtney Laws is very underrated I hadn't realized he's almost got 100 caps already he he I, it wouldn't surprise me if he'd won four um because it was I think it was I think it was like 2010 or something 2009, he made his debut for England. I hadn't realised how long he'd been around, but I couldn't not have O'Connell and Alan and Jones just because of the giants of, of the of the game and what they did and, and how they would put the team on their back from a leadership standpoint and a personality standpoint and just good fundamental basic rugby. I mean, yeah, I echo all of that and I've gone very similar, but just I've gone Paul O'Connell as well, but I've gone Martin Johnston for the exact same reason. Just for the iconic figure he is in European rugby, obviously key in that World Cup team, as you mentioned with when you're talking about Jason Leonard, um, and just an iconic leader and an iconic figure, and and you just see the images of him kind of bloody and ripped shirt and just like the epitome of of dedication, but I said an absolute monumental figure of English rugby in the second row, like Paul O'Connor I picked, and like Alwyn Jones, who you've, who you've mentioned. Completely agree. Yeah, you know, I, I think. The thing for me, obviously, thought about Martin Johnson, but he obviously had did some outstanding work when it was the Five Nations as well. And I think the longitudinal nature of Alwyn Jones and the fact he's still playing now. Um, I mean, I don't know how many Six Nations he's won, but he must be have won. You know, I'd be surprised if only won three. That might might well might might well be the case. So um, we're going to my back row. I kind of I don't know if I've cheated here a little bit. <laughs> um, because I've gone for two people who realistically are number eights, but one of them I think has or certainly could play six. Um, so uh, at number eight, I'll start there, it had to be Serge Parise. Just, I mean, you put him in any other team, maybe apart from Scotland, and, uh, <laughs> and he would win. You know, he would be a difference maker. You know, going back to the debate about... <laughs> 
the, 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 the ruck and winning ball and open play. I mean, he had everything, you know, and if you look at his club record, that will stand out as well. So, I mean, Sergio Parise is just... And, and to put a team on his back and to... Loyalty, we talk about how there's not always enough loyalty in sport anymore. It'd be very easy for him to have turned around and said, well, and retired from international rugby long before he did because of who he was playing with and, you know, made sure his body was in a good place to, to make as much money as he can and there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't begrudge him for that. But, no, he, he was he was a committed, loyal uh, servant to, to Italian rugby. Uh, at number six, as I said, could have been... This is someone who I loved watching and would constantly turn the ball over, would constantly be a presence, would constantly break tackles and would just do it over and over again. And that's Harry Nordicke from France. I think he played in an era of French rugby where he talked about that was that transition and there was the kind of, they were not as good as a team as they should have been as individuals and they were very much played as as that. But he would dominate games. He would take games away from um, from teams. He would steal the ball. He would carry the ball. He would be just a, a man mountain. And he was someone, I think, if he was in a more consistently run team where, where it was team orientated, I think we'd be having other conversations. Uh, and at number seven, again, someone from the kind of played across the background who could have played six or seven as well was Richard Hill. So when I first started watching rugby really in the early noughties and, and, watching, and understanding it, I think if he played now, he would get much more recognition. The amount of turnovers and the tenacity he played at kind of went unnoticed. He, he, he just, it was one of these times that because you didn't notice what he was doing, he was doing it so well. He was just, he was brilliant. You know, and it's at a time where, where you had Delalio and you had Johnston and you had Neil Back and you had Lewis Moody and you kind of had this, you know, and then back in Chris Robshaw, he, he was never present. He was a constant and he was and he was constantly winning the ball, making tackles and just the most reliable. And the amount of times he would come up and, and make a player and you're kind of like, oh, it's just Richard Hill because he didn't have that flashy mentality because he didn't have that kind of, he just get down and do his work. Yeah, very good. I think, I mean, Parise was... was... The one it was, I think the the second name I put down was Sergio Parise. It was just there was no other options for number eight. I think the biggest compliment I could have paid to him, I think he's one of the few rugby players across European rugby over the past twenty years that could have that the All Blacks would have really wanted to play for them and could have come in and played a hundred caps for that that team and and transcended any of the players he had in there. I think that's the biggest compliment you could you could pay to to Sergio Parise. At six, I went for just an absolute monster. Um, one of France's most capped player as captain and won a lot in the early days as well with France is Thierry Dussetois, just one of the best tacklers I think the game has ever seen. Just just, just so good defensively, game-changing with his tackles and, and, and very successful for France in the early days. And, and, and as you kind of mentioned before, one of the players who kind of transcended and lived through the France team, even with all the changes and all the unpredictability and everything we've seen, he was kind of one of the ever presents who managed to survive through that. Um, and I think, yeah, very, very good player. And then my number seven is maybe, I think, a, a brilliant rugby player, but I don't think we'd get into many back rows in terms of just ability alone, but in terms of what he's done for the Six Nations and his ability as a captain is what stands out for me, and that's Sam Warburton. Brilliant rugby player, 
But I just, I, I, but I think that there's probably better flankers out there in terms of the whole game. But in terms of what he did for Wales as a captain, uh, leading them to Grand Slam, back-to-back Grand Slams, and and being a, an iconic figure for Welsh rugby and, and being ever present through a lot of the those Gatlin years, and just being, and he, I think he's just one of those. He, he's going to become synonymous with the Six Nations because of the success he breeded in that tournament, and that's why I think that you have to have Sam Warburton at seven. So we're now going to move on to the backs, the the more fancy part of the team, you could say. Um, so I'm going to go in with my nine and ten. So my nine is really controversial. My nine is really controversial because they weren't always even the starting player in their own country. But I think someone who was very underrated and a victim of the kind of French setup, and that is Dimitri Yashvili. I think that he was often second fiddle and, and, and a victim of all the kind of chopping and changing and different managements and the kind of inconsistency of French selection. But he was always there. He was there or thereabouts. He was the only other player that I could find to have won four. I think, yeah, we'll look up Alwyn Jones. We'll see how many he's won. But certainly, Yashvili, four. But also, and you talk about matching performances, 19 points in the final game in the 2004 Six Nations against England to win that match for France against the world champions. Just like, totally outstanding he's the only scrum half to have over 200 points in the six nations he's the 13th highest point scorer of all time across five and six nations and he's done so playing a lot less games than the players around him because of that often on the bench often not always the first choice etc but what he did for france and what he managed to achieve in a in a french team that was very inconsistent that was very all over the place at times but he still achieved so much and scores so many points i think it often goes underrated and number 10, I don't think you can look past Johnny Wilkinson. Second highest point score of all times, but played 30 less games than Ronan Algara, who's at the top. And is just, I think, one of the best players European rugby have ever seen. Obviously iconic for that World Cup win, but just so much more than that. Just, I think, absolutely fantastic rugby player. Shame about injuries in the back half of his career, but I don't think you can look past Johnny Wilkinson to stand off. Uh, Johnny Wilkinson was my 10 as well. Um, I don't think there's any any question. You know, the other options, might say, might have been Sexton, might have been Agara, um, you know, Stephen Jones, but but all of them, I think, had some sort of limitations, and certainly Stephen Jones and Agara were, were game managers, and and Sexton, slightly more than that in my opinion, but 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 Wilkinson was much more of a game manager. I mean, I, I thought Sexton was a good shout. I did think about him quite hard. I think he's done a lot for Irish rugby, and he's won a lot. But I think, yeah, Wilkinson just for all around tops him. Yeah, I, I think, and uh, Wilkinson can could literally do everything. Um, that, that's the that's the thing. And uh, you know, and I think you know Wilkinson at times had to move in and play twelve. Mm-hmm. I, I I didn't. I, I'm not sure you could see Sexton doing that yeah, personally. Agreed, agreed. And that and that was that was what 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 tipped it over balance for me. Uh, mine was someone not the person who's played inside Sexton for the most part, and and that's Connor Murray. Um, I I. As obviously as a Scotsman who loves Scottish rugby, I hate Conor Murray <laughs> because he's just that good. He really, really is. You know, he is he is that good. I mean, we used to kind of seeing little, you know, you know, scrum half traditionally sort of small, nippy, whatever. The size of this man, the physical. I mean, he could play twelve. He could play ten. He could. He could. He could do it. He could do it all. And and plus that, he has the the agility and he has the wearable and you know what he has that nuggety kind of wind you up just stay that side of the line that you need from your nine and he's brilliant at it and, and you know and not that we should be adding this in to it and i haven't but if you look at what he's done at club rugby you know for munster it's just 
he's just incredible and and a lot of the good work that that I think Sexton has been allowed to do has has been on the back of actually being able to work with Conor Murray. You know, you think of Ogara, I mean he had Peter Stringer for, for a number of years and and Peter Stringer, excellent player, but certainly not that top echelon. I think Sexton has has benefited benefited from that. So Yeah, I think Murray and Ben Youngs are my other two honourable mentions who I'm very close with. But I think yeah, I think Murray is a good shot. But I like Yashvili for the points he scored. No, I I, I think actually I didn't I didn't I didn't think of him. No, that's that's very good. Um, going through my centres now, very simple. Just the two centres I've I always wanted to see play together and did play together a little bit in the Lions and were brilliant when they did. And I mean this playing at twelve certainly has his limiting factors and is probably not the best all round, but. Jamie Roberts. I just love watching Jamie's the the simple, fundamental, head down, power game, defense, doing a job and doing a job. You talk about kind of needing something to happen, game changing, you know, exactly. And game changing can be turning a two yard or two meter gain into seven, eight, nine meters, breaking the first tackle. And and that he just did that. He just did that. Very intelligent, very good. And with, I mean, I think this is the first name, if it's not the first name on your team, it was Brian O'Driscoll on the outside of him. That combination of power and, well, I was going to say finesse, but O'Driscoll has much more than that. I mean, for me, O'Driscoll has been my favourite rugby player to watch of all time. The best rugby player I have ever watched. And I include Dan Carter and Richie McCaw and Kieran Reid and people like that. And they, I just think, you know, going back to what you said about Sergio Parisi, I think O'Driscoll would have had well over 100 caps as well for the All Blacks. He was just brilliant in his all-round game, his intelligence. He, he, we talk, you know, put a bit of a football reference on it where we'd say that, you know, there's two kinds of centre-backs, ones that have to make last-ticket tackles and very good at it, and one that don't have to slide tackle because they're that switched on and their positions is right and they understand the game. He understood the game so well about when to go, when not to go, in attack, in defence, and then his leadership qualities. And I think a combination of, of those two with the thunder and lightning in the middle of the park, I was just was a joy to watch what he did for Lions, and I think was, was, was just brilliant. Yeah, I mean... I think uh, they, they, I was very close to picking the same two. Obviously, Adriska was the first name on my team sheet. I think he'd be the first name on anyone's team sheet. I think, in my opinion, he's the goat. He's he's the Messi of, of rugby, the best there is. I've I've always been a massive Adriska fan, and yeah, first name on the team sheet for all the reasons you said. Also, top try scorer in the Six Nations of all time, which obviously adds to that as well. And also the the most player of the series is in the Six Nations of all time as well. But at, at twelve. I've put someone I just did not want to put. I just did not want to put this person for so many reasons. But I, I felt, to be fair and to be honest, I had to put this person in. It's Owen Farrell. I'm putting Owen Farrell at 12. Ali's face is, 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 he's not happy. He is not happy. But I think Owen Farrell is unfortunately on his way to becoming a Six Nations legend. Obviously, one. I think two, if not three, with England. He's still only 29, so he's got a few years in the tank left. But if you look at the amount of points he scored, so he scored 441 points in 38 games, which is seven less than Johnny Wilkinson, who also played 38 games. He's averaging 11.6 points per game. So that means if he plays 10 more Six Nations match, which I think he's almost certain to do, he will overtake Ronan O'Gara to be the most highest point scorer in the Six Nations of all times. And I think, given the longevity he's had, the way he's been England captain, the way he's, he's been 
and ever present in that team for so long. He's played for so many years, one of the youngest players ever to play in the Six Nations. The amount of points, the amount of big moments he's had and the amount of big wins he's been a part of, I think as much as I despise the man, and I, and I don't use that word lightly, I think, unfortunately, if, you, if you're brutally honest about it, he's on his way to being Six Nations legend. Yes, you could say he's a standoff, but he's played a lot of his rugby at 12, arguably played a lot of his best rugby at 12, obviously very versatile, can flip between the two very easily. And, and unfortunately, I felt it was only fair to put him in. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even consider him for the centres, to be honest, which is why, I mean, I, I thought about him at 10, but I, I just, you know, outstanding rugby player. And I, I think probably your, your dis despising of him just comes from being very good and playing for England. Being very good and playing for England, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and the odd tackle that I disagreed with. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, you know, and he, and like Conor, Conor Murray, he plays on that line, you know, and, and that's going to rile up opposition fans. And, 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 and the best players did it. I mean, Richie McCaw, you know, was constantly breaking the breaking the rules, but getting away because he did it so brilliantly. Um, and I, I just think from I don't know what it is, maybe because it's it's who he is. But I just think that there are others, other players who who have more all more all round games. Now, yes, obviously I I put Jamie Robertson at twelve, and Jamie Robertson is not as good a rugby player overall as as Farrell. I didn't think about Farrell for ten, but I just think that. For me, he he's a ten, and he he didn't do as much as 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 Wilkinson, and and maybe that's slightly unfair because of the personalities of the uh, of the two. But I think you talked about injuries there, and yes, maybe longevity comes in like injuries. But I think you take the best version of Johnny Wilkinson and the best version of Owen Farrell, and there's only one winner there. Oh, agreed, and that's why I put Johnny Wilkinson at ten ahead of Owen Farrell. But I think that if you look at the stats. He'll have played as many games at 12 as he as he has at 10 for England in the Six Nations, partly because they've been trying to get George Ford in that team, who's been a, a good servant for England for a long time as well, even if he's not going to be talked about the upper echelons in the standoffs. But I think that he's, he's, he's as good at 12 as he is at 10, and that's why I feel like you could easily slip him in there in your greatest team of all time. So now to the, the back three, the final three, the, the interesting and the pizzazz and the tries, and I've gone for a Welsh duo on the wings in Shane Williams, who is just, when I was a wee lad, my, my, my first memories of watching rugby was just Shane Williams being absolutely magic on that left wing, the best step in world rugby. As I was going to say, two schools, too small to play rugby, but 87 caps and however many tries, or 87 tries even, maybe I can't remember what the stat was now, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think 22 tries, third or fourth top scorer across five and six nations of all time, just, just amazing. And on the right, I've gone for George North, I, I, George North's never played I've warmed to that much I just I don't know if it's his personality or his character or what but I think just the efficiency he plays with and the destructive nature and, and the amount of big performance he's put in for Wales to win then championships I said 20 tries himself in the top five top scorers in the Six Nations of all time and you still think he's got a few years to go so Brian O'Driscoll's 26 could be could be in danger potentially if it's a good couple of years we'll see what happens but I think just his efficiency and his, and his power and his just finishing ability in that wing is unprecedented. So and then behind my Welsh pairing, I've got the the I think the only Scotsman that's going to get picked in this, and that is Stuart Hogg. I battled about whether picking Stuart Hogg in for a long time because I couldn't decide whether it was just me being Scottish and biased and, and loving Stuart Hogg. But I think I've not seen a uh, fifteen with as much talent, certainly in Europe in my life. I don't. I generally don't think I have his ability and his ability to be brilliant in sometimes average Scottish teams is really testament to how good he is. And I think what proves it, and the thing that I really, 
was the final nail in the coffin for me when I put him in was the fact that he's the only player apart from Brian O'Driscoll to win player of the tournament in the Six Nations more than once winning it twice in two consecutive years nobody else has won it more than once apart from Brian O'Driscoll I think that shows how brilliant he's been a player he's been in the Six Nations and the fact that he was able to achieve that play of the tournament in the Scottish teams which I think actually did alright in those years won a few more games than you expected but they're not gonna, they weren't champions they weren't title contenders but his individual brilliance to win that award twice and to kind of be the pinnacle of that Scottish team for these past kind of five, six years just stands him out, I think, as the best fullback to have played. I've got one of the same as you. Um, I haven't got any Scots in my team, um, so I might give that away. But no, I've gone for George North as well. I think, you know, going back to how I looked at this game-changing ability and, and big playability and just, you know, when you watch people, your eyes were drawn to because the things they would do and and that was a very, George North would... would was just incredible for that, you know, and the fact he's still going with, you know, can be debated because one concussion away from, you know, that's a conversation for another time, but his his ability to score tries and individual tries from his own half, plus beating two defenders five yards out, three defenders and still getting across in the corner. My fullback is Lee Halfpenny. Um, I went for him because I think, He's a better version. <laughs> I'm not compared to but I use a better version of Chris Patterson. I what? knew you were going to say that, and I think you're totally right. <laughs> there is, is a better version of Chris Patterson. They have very similar careers in that at the start of their career, they were these dynamic, try-scoring, exciting, flair members of a back three who got out to very high try-scoring records early on and, and would score wonderful tries in the corner, would beat big steps, with you know counter attack from coming underneath the high balls and everything like that, and then he was able to transition into this second half of his career where he maybe lost a little bit of a step. He got a little bit more intelligent. He got a little bit more sound, and his game management and his ability to read and pull strings from fifteen, on top of obviously his 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 penalty and goal kicking, was he was able to to make things happen without needing that. And that, that's very similar to what Chris Patterson did. I mean, for years, Chris Patterson was talked about becoming Scotland's all-time leading try scorer because of the start he got to, and he never actually got that feat in the end. Whereas Lee Halfpenny, I think, was able to make that transition much better and to be part of as successful teams, Welsh teams as he was. You know, there was kind of a spine of the team that was constantly built around that. You know, likes of Alan Jones and... Jenkins up front. And Path Penny was part of that. He was just a fundamental part of the Welsh success under Gatlin for years. And I think he, in terms of, you look at across his career, he was able to do both sides of how he played 15. I think, and I just think it has to be him. I don't think it was anyone else who does consistently. And my, uh, my left winger is probably, he's a very similar style of player to, um, to yours. And I think if this player hadn't started in rugby league, he would have had the same record, if not better, than uh, Williams had, and that's Jason Robinson. Jason Robinson. I, mean, I actually, I when I first started watching sort of sport and telly, I watched quite a bit of rugby league because it'd be on on a random night. And I remember watching Jason Robinson and loving this guy in rugby league. And we talk about having the best sidestep. I, I would, I would contest that and say Jason Robinson's sidestep was something else. And yeah, Shane Williams. Loved him. Too small to play rugby. Didn't play nine. You know, could have, but you know, made a career of himself. But I think actually, from 
players have that kind of physique and that kind of thing. I think Jason Robertson was actually a better all-round player because he could play 15 as well. He offered a, a little bit more in defence. He offered a little bit more than just being a finisher and just being a kind of nifty-shifty. He, he could do the dirty yards because he'd come from, from rugby league where that's more of a requirement. And I think if he'd started in rugby union and had gone the whole way through, I think there'd be a different conversation. I mean, he's in the top. I think, I think he scored, what was it? 20 about sorry i think he scored 14 tries in 24 six nations games you know and that's you know you translate that to someone who played six or seven years in the other discipline of rugby i think if you look at a different picture and i'm going back to my game changing people people you, your eyes were drawn to and you would just expect big things and, and would bring it about and jason robertson was the epitome of that yeah, I think that's totally fair. I, I loved Jason Robertson. I thought was, I think the only reason I didn't go for him was because he didn't maybe have that longevity in the Six Nations that uh, Shane Williams had. And I'm kind of thinking of iconic players who'd contribute a lot to the Six Nations. That's why Shane Williams came to mind. But I think all the things you said about Jason Robertson apply, and he was a brilliant talent. And when I was young, he was. I think he was actually my favourite rugby player. He was the player I used to go and pass try pass the ball to on Rugby 04. <laughs> so I totally get everything you said about him. So there we go. So two slightly different takes. Uh, you know, Rory's from a very much a longitudinal kind of service to the Six Nations. Mine very much kind of players I wanted to watch and love watching what they brought. But it's now over to uh, now over to you to make the decision on uh, on who you think has picked the best uh, fifteen in Six Nations history. We look forward to the Six Nations starting this weekend. Uh, England are also taking on the Barbarians. So international rugby rugby unions back on our screens. Uh, but until next week, we'll probably have a little bit of a recap. Um, thank you for listening, and everyone stay safe.